If you'd like to take out your Bible with me and turn to Genesis chapter 2, Genesis chapter 2 and verse 18 will be the first verse that we read here in just a moment. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 18. The Harvard study of adult development is likely the world's longest-running physical and psychological study that has ever been conducted on human beings. It's been going on for over 80 years now. The study first began in 1938 and originally focused on 724 young men in their late teens from two different groups. The first group consisted of Harvard College sophomores, chosen because they were believed to be, by the people at the time, the brightest and best. And the second group came from the same area, but on the opposite end of the social spectrum, boys from Boston's poorest neighborhoods. Among the original recruits, to give you an idea of when this was taking place, was eventual President John F. Kennedy. Researchers checked in with these men throughout the course of their lives every two years to see how they were doing physically and mentally. And the study includes a vast amount of raw data, as you can imagine, including their medical records and and in-person interviews and questionnaires that they filled out. And so after over 80 years of studying these men, what one factor had the strongest correlation with the men's lives who flourished with physical and mental health and happiness. Well, surprisingly to the researchers, the one strongest common denominator among those men was those who had solid, loving relationships with friends, family, and community. George Vallant, the psychologist who was one of the directors of the study, and he directed it for over 40 years, he said he could sum up the findings of this study with one word, quote, love, full stop. Close relationships, more than money or fame, are what keep people happy and healthy throughout their lives, the study revealed. And those ties to other people, those close loving ties protected people from life's disappointments and heartaches, helped to delay mental and physical decline, were better predictors of long and happy lives than other things that we would expect like social class, IQ, or even their physical genes. That finding that love and relationships were the the biggest correlation between these other factors of success in life, that finding proved true across the board among the Harvard graduates and those young men from the inner cities of Boston. Let me give you some examples, some specifics of this in the findings of the study. The study found that people's level of satisfaction with their relationships at age 50 was a better predictor of what their physical health would be at age 80 than their cholesterol levels. Um, So just cancel all those doctor's appointments at age 50, right? No, but it is amazing that that was a better predictor of their physical health than cholesterol. And, And that's not all. We think about the opposite. That's true as well. Robert Waldinger, the director who followed Valant that we quoted earlier, he said that the loners, quote-unquote, in this study often died earlier than those with, with good relationships. And he said specifically, quote, 
Loneliness kills. It's as powerful in destroying your physical health as smoking or alcoholism. Researchers also found that those with strong social support experienced less mental deterioration as they aged and reported higher levels of happiness and fulfillment. But as believers, I mean, we already knew this, didn't we? Our congregational focus for 2022 has been better together. This concept that we need these relationships with other Christians if we are going to be fulfilled and frankly if we're going to accomplish what it is that God has put has given us to do. And as we think back and we look back all the way to January and the first Sunday in January, we began with lightning bugs, a translation of y'all in Matthew chapter 5. And this text in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 18. After God has created everything and declared it either good or very good, for the first time in verse 18, the Lord God said, it is not good. And of what did he make this declaration? It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. From the words of God, it is not good for man to be alone. We need each other. We were designed that way. And God has created several communities throughout history to show and give hope for us to fulfill this need of being better together, of having one another. And we've talked about so many of those different relationships and communities through the course of this year. But I want us to think back to the people of Israel. This community that he made, a special people who were supposed to serve him and and be a light to the world, who were supposed to be intercessors between the nations of the Gentiles and the one true God, Yahweh himself. He promised to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob this people, and he called them out of Egypt with a mighty hand. So what did peace and blessing look like to this special community of God's people? Well, turn over a a few books in your Bible to the book of Numbers, Numbers chapter 6, Numbers chapter 6, and we're going to begin reading in verse 22. This is what's often called the priestly blessing. It is the blessing that was to be spoken by the priest over the entire congregation of the people of Israel. Uh, And it's interesting when you think about uh, archaeology and the things that we have discovered Did you know that the oldest verified copy of the Hebrew biblical text, it's this blessing, the two silver scrolls that were discovered. So this is an unrolled scroll made of silver. Um, It's about, if you rolled it back up, it would be about the size of a small cigarette. And what they found were that these were amulets at a burial site. And so somebody was buried... Assumably, or a very wealthy person, a very wealthy Jew, was buried outside of Jerusalem, and they were buried with these amulets around their neck with this inscription from Numbers chapter 6. And these two scrolls date from 600 BC. It was a communal blessing, not to one Israelite, of course, but to the community of the children of Israel. It is not addressed to him or her. It is addressed to them. And so let's read that together beginning in verse 22. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, 
Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, This is the way you shall bless the children of Israel. Say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So they shall put my name on the children of Israel and I will bless them says the Lord. Now, there is much that we could talk about when it comes to this blessing, but I want us to focus on that last word, that word peace. Shalom is a term that we're familiar with in Hebrew. And when we think about peace as it is described in both the Old and New Testaments, it is more than just the absence of active conflict. I I think a lot of times that's the replacement for peace that people think about in their lives. If I don't have active conflict going on, I'm at peace. And yet we know better than that, don't we? Uh, Any nation under a dictatorship knows that the absence of conflict doesn't necessarily mean that there is peace among its people. All of us who have been to an awkward uh, family occasion where two family members seem to despise one another and we all sit around the same table know that there's not really peace in that room, though there is the absence of conflict. No, instead, this This concept, shalom or peace, it means well-being and health and prosperity, but most of all, salvation. In short, it is the sum total of all of God's good gifts to his people when we have peace within ourselves, but even more between ourselves. This is more than just the inner peace that we can individually have. It implies the peace that we can have together. They are to say unto them that the Lord will give them peace. And wherever the Jews went throughout all Israel or the world, they carried this blessing from the, pe- from the priests with them. And eventually, the most important city to these people would be a place called Jerusalem, right? Jerusalem, which is translated a city of peace. And wherever the Jews went, many of them would pray toward this city, this city of peace. And they would make the journey back there yearly in order to worship God with the rest of God's people. And this yearly pilgrimage to Jerusalem is much of what kept their national brotherly unity alive, even in the midst of trials and temptations and difficulties, even in the midst of multiple nations trying to wipe them from the face of the earth. Still, the people of God made these pilgrimages back to the city of peace, back to Jerusalem, and they came to worship together. And we know. We know the songs that they sang when they came to worship together in this way. Psalms 120 through 134 are called the Psalms of Ascents. And it's believed that those psalms were sung by the Jews in Jesus' day before they came to the temple to worship on the feast days, specifically the Passover. So we've got these psalms from Psalm 120 to 134, and everybody's in Jerusalem to worship, and as they're walking up from the various places that they're staying to the temple, they begin singing these songs. And toward the beginning of these psalms of ascent, in Psalm 122 in verse 1, it says this, I was glad when they said to me, let us go into the house of the Lord. So 
So these psalms cover all of your religious life and really your physical life as well. And so you can imagine we're, we're coming up, we've sung a couple of these songs, and as we see the temple, maybe even as we're going up the steps of the temple, we sing to ourselves, I'm glad that we're all here. I'm glad that we're all coming together to worship. And after they're in the temple and they've sung a number of other psalms, at the end of the day, after most of their worship is done, in Psalm 133 and verse 1, they say this, Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. I'm not a patriarch of a family yet, right? So I've got a family. I've got two little girls. But I've seen the look on the face of both of my grandfathers, uh, one before he passed and the other. But especially my grandfather that is now passed, I've seen the look on his face when everybody is there and everybody's getting along at that moment in time and he sees his family and their devotion to the Lord. I remember that look clearly, that look of peace and contentment and how good and how pleasant it was. How much more God with his people when they came together to the temple and they looked around and said, how good is this? How pleasant is this for us to come together and have this kind of unity? But as wonderful as those moments were, that was an exclusive community into which you had to be born. You had to be a Jew. Now, certainly there were proselytes who were converted, but by and large, this was a relationship by birth, a relationship by family. And it was a community for a specific time that was created by God for a specific purposes. And when God was creating and choosing that nation, that family, God looked ahead to another time and to another community. Turn back in your Bible, if you would, to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12 so this is the beginning of that community, of that family, the children of Israel. It begins with a man named Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. And you're probably familiar with these promises that are made to Abraham. In Genesis chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Get out of your country and from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. We're starting something new here in a different country it's going to be a different family. I will make you a great nation. He begins these promises. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse him who curses you. And in you, uh, Genesis chapter 22 and verse 18 repeats the promise and says, In your seed, in your descendants, specifically in Christ, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In you, in your seed, all what? All the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so God is choosing this specific family with Abraham, but it was never intended to just be about that one community, about that one family. Eventually, it was intended to be a blessing on all the families of the earth. And this was the promise that was made. And this was the promise that was fulfilled in Christ by the opportunity to be united in the chosen peace with God and one another in Jesus Christ. It is no longer about the children of Israel. It is about the church of 
the church established by, the church belonging to, the church headed by Jesus Christ. Christ's church, his assembly, his congregation, his family. And we see that church described in a number of places in the New Testament, but I want us to focus for just a moment in Ephesians chapter 3, if you'll turn over there. Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3, let's read verse 6 together. This is the mystery, this was God's plan, this is what was revealed through Paul and the other inspired prophets and apostles. What was it, verse 6, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. And what good news that is, that we can be part of a community that is headed by Christ. And what is that? Well, let's drop down to verse 10. To the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers and the heavenly places according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. There are all kinds of different relationships and communities that God has made and put together to fulfill this need that we have for one another. But there is one community that stands above all the rest. The community that God intended for all to share in. And the one he requires us to be a part of is Christ's church. This ecclesia, this community or congregation of called out ones, God's people working and worshiping together in unity and peace of thought and hope and purpose. And if you stop to think about it, All other fruitful and important relationships that we have physically as human beings are just an echo, a shadow of this one, right? A husband and a wife. Well, that's supposed to teach us about Christ and his church here in the book of Ephesians confirms that, right? Parents and children, that teaches us about God as our father and Christ as our older brother and our brothers and sisters in Christ in the church. Masters and servants. Well, God is the master and we are to submit ourselves willingly to him as his faithful servants and he adopts us into his family as sons and daughters. And we think about all the other relationships that we have that maybe are less important than those teachers and students, a coach with a team, close friendships that we have with one another. All of those we see reflected between Christ and his disciples, his followers who come after him to learn from him and to imitate him. All these other relationships and the success that they bring into our lives physically and mentally and emotionally if we're thriving in them. And so too, we've seen the ugly side of relationships also, right? The pain that these close relationships can bring if we don't have these relationships or if these relationships are filled with conflict and abuse In both the positive and the negative, these other relationships should cause us to yearn for our most important one. The spiritual relationships we have in Christ and his church, his body, his family. We are better together. 
And the New Testament talks about this often. And so we've done some studies through the course of this year to show that. We went through the book of Hebrews and we echoed the call of the Hebrew writer in studying this let us passages that all of the things that we're called to do as Christians, almost all of those things, are not something that I'm supposed to be doing on an island all by myself. Let us do these things together in both our attitude and our action. Uh, we're in the midst of completing our study on the one another passages that, that we began thinking about in January and that we're studying on Wednesday nights now, that we are members of one another, that we love one another, that we're at peace with one another, and all of these other concepts that we find throughout our Bible. And of course, those two studies are not all that we have talked about. In so many different ways, we've challenged each other to bear one another's burdens, to pray for each other, to worship together, to study together as God has called us to. We're better together here on earth. And uh, maybe some of you are glad that I, I, I'm not allowed to beat this dead horse anymore because we're going to have a new congregational focus in 2023, right? But, but my hope and my prayer is that we'll take these things with us and that in times of conflict in the future, we will remember that simple but powerful reality that we are better together, not because some Harvard study says so, but because God designed us that way. We are to be better together here on earth when we are a church that is unified, that knows shalom, that knows peace, and all that is brought with peace with God and peace with one another. But all of this better togetherness, all of this is in anticipation of being better together fully and wholly and perfectly, not here but there, in heaven. Revelation, the revelation given to John that, that, that ends the revelation given to man, it calls heaven the new Jerusalem. And I think that's because the old one, the physical Jerusalem, never lived up to that ideal of this city of peace. God's people had a city of peace, and yet it was filled with conflict, internal conflict, external conflict. They never had the full, full measure of God's blessing in that peace. And consider this concept of the new Jerusalem. Consider the number of people implied by that word city in Revelation. In chapter 5, there are more than 100 million angels, if they could be counted, worshiping the Lamb. And I assume they will be in the new Jerusalem in heaven. We read of the 144,000 of the idealized tribes of Israel. And just after that, there's a multitude which no one could number around the throne. And with one language and one voice, they're praising God. Because ultimately, it's not about numbers. It's not just the, the image of how many people, but the quality of people that is really what is most important. The quality of people are what makes any group whatever it is, right? Not the number, but the quality. Uh, who in here has ever had to do a group project in school? Um, you know that there's a big difference between quantity and quality, right? A partnership with one other person, if that person actually works is far better than a group of ten where everybody's just trying to slack along and let somebody else do it. And I'll say the quality is, of course, a big reason why we choose where we live and why we live in those places. 
We think about Lufkin. Uh, we didn't move to Lufkin because it's the biggest or because of the entertainment or because of the scenery or the food or because the weather is the best on earth here. Check back with me after we go to Indiana and the highs are in the single digits. Maybe I'll feel better about that. We're here because of the people. And honestly, that's what makes any place what it is. That's what makes this church what it is, the quality of the people. Imagine, imagine a city, a whole city, made up of the followers of God. A city where everyone is saved. You ever go down that road, you ever go down that path, where you start thinking about the lost? Uh, we're about to drive, as I said, to Indiana. Um, and we're going to do that over a couple of days. I think we're going to drive like 30 total hours over the course of the break. And in all of that driving, there's lots of time to think, right? Um, most people are texting, but if you're not texting, there's time to think. And one of the things that I think about is all these cars that are passing me, or let's be honest, that I'm passing I think about the people in those cars, and Stephanie gets on to me because a lot of times I'll rubberneck a little bit. I'm like, what do those people look like? You know, what do those people look like? She's like, you're going to get a shot one of these days, hopefully not. And I think about those people, and I think about their lives, and I think, you know, what is their life like? And is that somebody that loves God or doesn't love God? But I think it's clear from looking at the world, and it's clear from the scriptures, too, the reality is that there are always more who don't love God than do. And over the course of a drive, if I have too much time to think, that starts to get a little overwhelming. All of those who are going to be lost. And I'm so grateful that none of that uh, is up to me. That's in God's hands. And God is going to determine who's lost and who's saved and all of those things. But this I know. that there is going to be a city someday that is filled with only people who love the Lord. And it is that ultimate manifestation of peace, of shalom. It is the true Jerusalem, the city of peace, where I get to be with all the saved from all the nations and times before. What would a city like that be like? Where we are one with God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit as they are one in thoughts and purposes. Can you imagine a city like that? Well, it would be a city where there is no racism or prejudice or sexism. There would be no political parties or socioeconomic status to divide us. It would be a city where we truly have peace. And I am reminded of Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 through 28. For you are all sons of God through the faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. All of these other physical things that might divide us, those things, those things become so, so, so less important. The church is intended to be that peace 
And our worship assemblies are supposed to mirror that city, blending our voices in song to the Lord, saying amen to the prayers together because we're all of one heart and mind and agree in the supplications we're taking to our God, partaking of the emblems of the Lord's Supper together because we are all saved by the grace of Jesus and His sacrifice on the cross. And no matter who you are, And no matter where you came from, whether Harvard or the inner city of Boston or anywhere in between, you can be just as much an equal and a full part of this family as anybody else. You can have fellowship with God and Christ and the Spirit and other Christians. A living and active church is just as much a glimpse of glory as the book of Revelation is. It is a small village made up of however many hundred that is like the holy city. That city uh, just has a lot more people than we do. (laughs) And you know what that means, right? More people, more people, more problems, sometimes even in the church. But not there, not in that city. God, from the very beginning, wanted a people who chose him, who, of their own free will, chose to love him and the children of Israel by physical birth and their physical city of peace were just imitations, shadows of what we can and do have now. But I don't want you to get the wrong idea. That's what's coming, but it's not yet what is. We are better together, but may I speak bluntly to our visitors this morning, this church is not perfect together. It's unclear who first said it, uh, but there is an old quote that the church is a hospital for sinners, not a museum for saints. And while the quote is unknown in who coined it, and it's not a biblical quote, I believe that sentiment to be true. You know why we are better together? Because Christ has put us together. And by his blood we have been redeemed from the sins that we have committed. And what we have in common, the people who are a part of this group of Christians, what we truly have in common is not background, it's not age, it's not socioeconomic status. What we have in common is humility enough to acknowledge our faults and wisdom enough to help one another to Christ for healing because we know we're not perfect. And hopefully, hopefully enough faith in common to believe that Christ's healing can be total and eternal leading to our ultimate peace. If you don't have that kind of community this morning, if you don't have any together to be better with, then God in his infinite wisdom saw fit to make a community of which you could be a part, to have those kinds of loving relationships. Um, Barrett sent me his list of songs, and I looked over them, and I said, yeah, that sounds good. But I was struck when we sang number 219. In describing our peace and unity here as Christians, it says, how sweet, how heavenly is the sight When those that love the Lord in one another's peace delight and so fulfill 
the word. When each can feel his brother's sigh and with him bear a part, when sorrow flows from eye to eye and joy from heart to heart, when free from envy, scorn, and pride, our wishes all above, each can his brother's failings hide and show a brother's love. When love in one delightful stream through every bosom flows, when union sweet and dear esteem in every action grows. If we can have that, and hopefully this year has led us down that road, then verse 5 is true. Love is the golden chain that binds the happy souls above, and he's an heir of heaven who finds his bosom glows with love. We have love for you. We pray that you have love for the Lord. And if you need to put the Lord on in baptism, or if you need to make things right with your family, your spiritual family, your brothers and sisters in Christ, won't you come now while together we stand and while we sing. Lord Jesus, I Lord.